0: Let's begin for today. And what we're going to do in this session, we're continuing with 7 and 7A. We had the debate last time, and I want to debrief a little bit on the debate. Um, uh, Let me just say that was one of the finer ones that we've had. Uh, Everybody was prepared, everybody looked good. Um, JB came dressed properly, Um, it's very, uh, very nice. Um, now, I would have to say we we allowed a couple of interesting things. Number one, we had Travis Scholl be the judge. I had just kind of brought him into this, rung him in, in the morning after I came here to help set the place up. So he hadn't read the material. It was very interesting to me that for him, this virtually literal analogy thing was not clear. You were all doing inside talking with each other on the basis of Addendum 7A. Everybody knew what that was about. you got to read Addendum 7A. I told them to read that, You know, take a look at it later. But it was clear that if you were going to argue this sort of straight out with somebody, you would have to spend a little bit more time unpacking some of that if that's the way you want it to go. All right, secondly, I do want to underscore that point that I made, because this happens every time you have the debate, is that the pro side argues culture and interpersonal relations. The con side argues confession and faithfulness to the scriptures. And so what you tend to have is the sides talking by each other. Now, Dallas and I were walking to class together here, and uh, he mentioned, he said, you know, one thing that was really uh, helpful is just to see the possibility of talking by each other like that. In other words, essentially seeing that you have a big-time debate, this is a very real possibility. And by debate, I don't mean a formal debate. I mean you're just having a discussion with somebody. <clears throat> now, third, and I didn't say anything at the end. I wanted the judge to do his job and so on. Um, to my way of thinking, the con side clearly won. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I let him, and this is the first time I would say that I have seen the con side clearly win the debate. I thought that there were um, at least um, three items that uh, were raised, mainly by you, Josh, that were really never answered by the pro side, and these would have been the major points. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I thought actually the cons I could have ridden this horse a little harder. This thing that you said that um, in doing counseling, women who had been abused did not in the experience think that the problem was addressing God as Father or something like that. Uh, the reason that that's such a powerful argument is it's on, on their own ground, the ground of interpersonal and experience and so on like that. And that, was, that point was never actually responded to uh secondly <clears throat> your point you only made it one one time and then that then it was passed that um uh it was paul who adjusted he didn't adjust the gospel and that that's a that's a point that could have been uh developed now i think the pro side could have tried to attack that by saying yeah but his adjustment did involve things like um what themes he picked up, and so on. But, but be that as it may, it was an interesting point. Um, and then the third thing, and this is together, and I don't know if this was so much. Uh, this is just an overall point. This isn't really pro or con. Um, in this particular issue, this issue of addressing God or even describing God in masculine terms. You have to really be very careful talking about God as male and God as masculine. This is a really big point. And th- your side was kind of going down the wood road to oblivion here for a while when there was a, there was a sort of a claim that God is male and so on. That's going to be a difficulty. It seems to me that you have to try... Now, it is true, and you said this, that God's son was male. <clears throat> but, you're, but you're going to have to say that there is sort of masculinity without m- maleness, male genitalia, and so forth. This is part of the whole argument. And so now what begins to happen... And Dallas just talks about, you know, when we we're talking about talking by each other and so on. Now, all of a sudden, you put this card on the table and you start having big-time arguments about whether or not um, uh, gender is societally constructed. I'm just talking about arguments out in society now, you know, whether there's really anything inherent about masculinity and femininity and all that kind of stuff, and there, these are huge questions it's why I pick this particular topic for the debate. It will open up the relationship between culture and scripture, uh, the relationship between male and female, masculine and feminine, uh, the relationship between uh, pastoral issues and confessional issues, and uh, believe me it's sort of like the tip of an iceberg which starts to get you into these profound hermeneutical issues last point Uh, this particular debate should convince you if nothing else has this far it's these biggie questions which are the ones that really exercise people and the ones that really cause the great conflicts. You know, so the the debates you have over scripture and stuff aren't about variant readings and, you know, did was Galatians written to the North Galatian or South Galatian people or something like that, but it's these big kind of hermeneutical issues. And this is precisely why this class has been so oriented toward the theoretical questions, this is exactly what splits people at the deepest levels. These kinds of big issues with the big questions is, you know, is language sociologically determined? Is, you know does our practice, can our practice at time get disconnected from our doctrine, or is the doctrine actually being driven by um, um, our, our own assumed sociological practice, all this kind of stuff. So, um, uh, thank you very much for preparing very well. Preparation is uh, is most of the game in in a lot of things in life, and I thought that um, uh, I thought you guys really did a fine job. Uh, uh, one last thing. One time. The con side mentioned the following. Nobody ever mentioned it again. Just thought I'd bring it up because it's an interesting issue, just linguistically. And it was the Ephesians three fourteen to fifteen passage, which, um, and I can't remember who it was from the um, the negative side. Um, uh, no, it was Ficken. I I do put names down next to these things, and. Uh, yeah. Huh? It was, oh, it was Hutch. Okay, see? All right. Every every place I had DF, I meant Hutch. Okay, good. Uh, Good. This thing about um, uh, God the Father, after whom all fatherhood is named. See, this is a really interesting point. You guys never drove it much, and they avoided it like the plague, you know? Uh, Now, I have a feeling that on on this now listen to how I'm going to say this. That's an ontological statement. It's not a linguistic statement. So God is the Father after whom all fatherhood is named. Um, God is Father and our fatherhood is intended to mirror that i'm not so sure that one can maintain that that is a a linguistic statement in this sense that's how you got the vocable father or av in hebrew say Because it was first applied to Yahweh. Well, in fact, it's not. See? So, all of the things, whether it's Adam or Av for father, Avoth, fathers, plural, um, these are not derived linguistically from the names or descriptions of Yahweh. So, I think you have to watch out on that particular one that you're not sort of overplaying your hand and making it sound like um, we name our earthly fathers fathers because that's what God is, something like that. At that, I think, linguistically is not going to be able to stand up. Yeah, Hutch? Oh, no, I think he answered my question. Yeah, okay. That was interesting. It was an interesting point. And again, it was a point you guys could have driven harder if you had wanted to. Um, I mean, I don't think it's a legitimate point, but rhetorically, in the moment, it would have been a really powerful thing. What was that, you behind, or is that, uh, that's, that's, that's suing, hand, yeah. yeah, 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 all right, I was wondering about that. Go ahead. Um, this came up during the debate. It okay. was an example that the Khan side used, but it just struck my curiosity. Um, Somebody brought up the point that if you're witnessing to someone of the Islam faith or someone who yeah. speaks Arabic yeah. would you use the term Allah to Allah. refer to God? And my question was I thought that the direct translation of Allah was God mm-hmm. and that it just that the yeah. assumption in United States culture is that that's their god well god is our god. Yeah, see you know it, there's a difference between a descriptor and a name maybe something like this. Now, let me just talk. I wanted to mention To you, something here. Have any of you in this room? I imagine the answer is no, but I'll ask it anyway. Any of you ever heard of the so-called Chinese term controversy? The Chinese term controversy. This is something that went on for quite some time and reached its head in the twenties and especially the thirties in our country, and it it surrounded the issue of translating the word for God in Chinese. And what should you use? And essentially the argument as it developed devolved into this. Should you use the term shun or should you use the term shangdi? Sometimes it's, no, this is. Uh, uh, sometimes it's with a D and sometimes with a T and this is a kind of a general term for spirit which could encompass even things like a spirit of a stream or a forest or something like that, very general term and this is like the high god, maybe make that small g high god in uh, some traditional Chinese religious thinking and the question was when it comes time to translate Yahweh or theos what should we use should we use shun or should we use shangti and some people argued well this is awfully general, and you're going to get a wrong view. It's going to make God look kind of small. And the other side said, well, it's like doing it with a capital S or something like that. And that's the only one. Then the other side said, no, we ought to go this way um, because people will understand that we are talking about the high and mighty God. The other side said, yeah, you know what, though? That's sort of like translating uh, God as Zeus, and the the church did not do that. It called him Theos, or Kyrios, sort of capital, instead of Zeus. And this controversy raged precisely suing because of this issue, this is what's so parallel, is the issue with um, uh, Allah. Is this essentially the name of a guy, or is it? can you use it as a descriptor, like high God, only God, empty, of, empty it of its characteristics, and refill it with the specific characteristics which would be from the Judeo-Christian tradition, All right? So I mean, this is very similar uh, to this uh, debate today. Well, what do you think? Oh, oh and, and I, I should say, this raged in the Missouri Synod and the so-called synodical conference, which included what we would call the Wisconsin Synod today. So a lot of conservative Lutherans were sort of involved in this 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 had raged also with jesuit translators many centuries earlier and it was a pretty widespread debate some translations tried some some translations tried another in the end people came down to a kind of a common understanding which side do you think won out put your hand up willing to take a guess at this. Yeah, suing. So I'd say it'd be the capital S. Right. That is exactly what the conservative folks argued that you should do. You basically empty everything from its meaning and say there really is only one spirit, capital S. You're wrong. It was the other way. What actually happened was, the, was it went the other way. I mean, I kind of agree with you, but there were pretty strong there were pretty strong arguments uh, in this direction sh- saying "No, what we can do is actually empty this out of its false content, and uh, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to get the name right here. this could be This could be an E here. There is a guy named who starts with a y kind of a famous name in synodical conference history and in this particular um, uh, controversy. And Tom, he argued very strongly for this, just on your, you know, your kind of feeling about this. But it sort of went the other way. And my understanding now is that the standard translations will not do sort of capital shun, see? They'll they'll uh, go the other way, um, and one of the arguments against this was that the church did not use Zeus. See, they did not try to empty that of its um, of its meaning and then fill it with new content. This uh, and of course this all there there are two issues that are stalking here simultaneously. One is. Um, this, what would you call it? This large theological issue, let me put it like that, of um, worship by unbelievers. <clears throat> what are they actually worshiping? Is it like this? Here's the true God. Here then is the person worshiping. Is it like this? They're attempting to worship the true God but kind of going off the beam? That's what the Shangdi side argued. Or are they actually worshiping Satan? So. Essentially, the the Shen side, Shun, I guess, uh, argued that worship not of the true God is worship of false gods. It's worship of it's satanic worship, and so you shouldn't try to employ this kind of thing because you're totally headed in the wrong direction. This side argued strongly. Know what we're doing is we're trying to kind of straighten out the arrow here and get it going so so let's put it in sort of velsian terms here there's an issue of referent what is actually the referent of your praying and your your addressing and so on like that are you actually referring to the real God or are you referring to something diametrically opposed to that? Right, so that, that's, that's one kind of thing. And then in the uh, debate as we did it, the problem is in human terms, language about God is non-literal. When we say he's our father, He is the shepherd of the sheep. Um, It is not literal language. Now, some language is literal about God. If you'd say he's our protector, I, I guess that's literal. All right? Savior is literal. But once you start using non literal language, the game heats up remarkably. Because then people try to argue, and that's the point of Addendum Seven A. Is to not allow this, that people stri- start to argue. As long as the signifier the conceptual signified characteristics don't correspond a hundred percent, then everything's negotiable. See, that's what people try to argue, and that's what I'm trying to argue in Seven A. Uh-uh, that's not quite right. There are sort of controlling metaphors. And not all are equal. Thus, if you'll remember from the argumentation of the addendum, if you want to say God is like a mauling panther, God is rot, that that corrupts and destroys, there are just way, way fewer characteristics that correspond than when you say God is husband or God is shepherd. Now. you know, at, So in other words, I'm trying to argue, if you, wanna, if you want to portray God in male terms, masculine terminology, <clears throat> at some point, quantity kind of becomes quality. So you know that you have red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet, Roy G. Biv. That is, those are the colors of the spectrum. Now, every color and every shade of color is only one wavelength different than the one next to it. But you know what? At some point, indigo ain't orange. You know? So that, in other words, it's the argument of the beard. At some point, the little differences add up, practically speaking, to a really big difference. And that's sort of what I'm arguing with the notion of virtually literal analogies. That there are lots of characteristics that come over as opposed to something like God is rot or a mauling panther. It's only, only one or something that's coming over. And at some point, to quote me, to some point quantity becomes quality. At some point, in my view, quantity becomes quality. That you can say that uh, uh, when there are a whole bunch of characteristics that correspond, it's really different if a whole mess of them do as opposed to one where there's only one characteristic that corresponds. And you've got to kind of treat it differently. And that's why I talk about controlling metaphors. Those are kind of your controlling metaphors. <clears throat> but this, is, uh, this argument... With uh, the Chinese term controversy and everything, is a very this whole thing with how you talk about God, who is in one sense unlike us, is is really an interesting problem. Now, uh, uh, Justin, do you have your hand up? Way back? Oh, okay, it was Billy. Um, when we're saying that. The- there's more characteristics that match up for yeah. a virtual, literal Yeah, theology. yeah. yeah. Um, is that, as far as a society, sees a specific signifier or for each person? Well, I would say, uh, now we're going to start and we get to this in chapter 10, you're talking about the intentionality of the author. Yeah, and in his sociocultural context. I was thinking more in terms of our debate for a father, mother, um, as those two being an option, if someone in their head, mother, like we tried to use in yeah. our side, yeah, these characteristics jump up that, for whatever reason, then in their mind, there are more characteristics with the word mother than there are father. Would that then... Well, that's what you guys were arguing. Yeah, that's what you were arguing. That's the only thing we could argue. Yeah, well, right, right. No, you're right. Um, and you know what? I, what I guess I have to say at that point is that you can see the way the church has operated, Billy. That it does. It has sort of assumed that you you want to respect the signifiers. And fill those with the proper conceptual signifieds. Now, it doesn't always work like that. Like they took agape, which doesn't mean selfless love in secular Greek, and fill that with some you know new conceptual signifieds. But uh, uh, however, on this particular thing about father or husband, not only. Are there a lot of characteristics that correspond? But it is a metaphor that tracks consistently throughout the Bible. See? So, um, I mean, let's just take something like um, the shepherd. So you have the Lord is my shepherd, you have Psalm 23, Uh, you have uh, Jesus, I am the good shepherd. Uh, you have people being called pastors, poimenes. So you use that. Uh, you know, in, in other words, it's something that is useful. It's not like out of the blue you pull mauling panther. You know, this is not developed in any way as um, uh, as an important revelatory metaphor for what we're doing. And so that's why part of my argument is. What are the controlling metaphors? And the controlling metaphors are masculine metaphors. Okay, now we have to get off of this pretty soon, but I'll just take one or two more. Yeah? When you were speaking about the Chinese term term controversy, I understand with the difficulty of choosing which word you're going to use. How do Bible translators go about doing Western culture into non-Western culture? We get in our own mind, kind of what a Greek culture or Roman culture would have been like, because we are a product of that. Right. A Chinese nation is not. How do they make yeah. that cultural switch? See, that, that's one of the things that's really hard. Now, you guys over on this side brought up that thing about uh, the pig of God as opposed to the lamb of God. See, that that's part of that issue. Um, I think in general the impetus has always been to try to actually explain the other culture and not just totally adapt, you know, so that if you, um, um, if people in the inner city hadn't really ever seen or had experience with sheep, you you don't just go to something like dumb species of dogs or something like that. Uh, You know, you, you try to actually get people into it. But the, you're raising all the big questions and Bible translators angst about these things all the time good okay so nice job guys very good and uh, thank you to the leaders who did a tremendous job organizing this now going to the uh, chapter 7 papers now uh, more themselves um, I would like to talk uh, speak to your papers and uh, answer your questions, and then go on to a couple of other things. All right, first of all, uh, Eric, uh, can you explain synecdoche more? Yeah, and that's not so easy. Uh, the part for the whole and whole for the part. Mostly, it's part for the whole. Okay, mostly. Uh, I would say, here here would be, a, and what it does is part for the whole that focuses on, Critical factors. So, for example, if you're talking about a baseball team that has a good fielding average or something like this, you might say, hey, that team's got good gloves out there. Now, that doesn't mean people are using really nice, the latest Rawlings models, but they're really terrible fielders, and they have, but they have pretty gloves out there. It doesn't mean that. It means the guy's using the gloves, and the gloves are really critical. Now notice how this can kind of stack up though. I could say about one team, they got good gloves out there. That's synecdoche. Now listen to this. They have good sticks on the bench. All right? Now stick is a metaphor and a synecdoche. So you have the the bat is similar to a stick. There's your metaphor. And then they're not talking about, golly, we're not using that stupid stuff. We've got genuine Louisville sluggers. You know, it's not like that of good, good sticks. They are talking metaphorically about the batters. We're able to do this. We're able to stack these things like this. I think sports is particularly adept at it. But um, uh, so in general, all hands on deck. Somebody says that in the sailing times. It would have been ridiculous for people to say, how about our feet? Well, it, it, if you're sailing and you're dealing with sails, the hands are really absolutely critical for this. So, uh, so most of the time, it's going to be uh, part for the whole, but we did have an example like there's weather coming, you know, something like that. Every once in a while, you get these whole for the part, uh... sorts of examples okay good thanks for that that's uh, that's a good basic question um, now is this you justin justin yes could you explain loose usage this is my own invention justin i've never seen anybody else do this what i'm thinking that it is is it's it's sort of remember the luke fourteen passage about inviting people to lunch or dinner you know and then it says at the end and when you give a banquet invite invite the lame and the halt and so on like that well i'm not thinking that banquet there <clears throat> is supposed to mean not lunch but way bigger. See, I don't think that that's right. So that what his things are, uh, that that's a rule for when you give a really big meal. But if it's not really big, you're allowed to despise the poor. That 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 can't mean the, that can't mean that. So what, How's he using? How's he using that then? Um, He's got to be using it in a way that it is this plus everything else that's lesser than it. Okay? Everything else that is lesser than it. In other words, if if it applies to banquet, for heaven's sake, it applies to everything else. So, so it's kind of now, uh, Justin. What I wasn't comfortable of saying, I, I could have said something like this. This is why I schwaffled around. It's like it's like a synecdoche. In that it's part for the whole. Except, except it's really a lot more literal on banquet. If I say they got good gloves out there. I mean, you're not really thinking it's all about the gloves. You're thinking about the gloves in the total context of the players, right? But here by banquet, I do really mean banquet. And I'm I'm not using that as just entree for a much larger thing. So that's why I say it's banquet plus. I I don't know if that's a figure of speech exactly. There's, There's another possibility... And that is, do you remember we did this in addendum 5A? We talked about merismus, which is you have several parts and then you're intending on mixing them. So, for example, let's take a look at that. I think this is kind of important. Go to addendum 5A. Now, addendum 5a, we have as an example Psalm 72, verse 1. O God, your judgments to the king give, and your righteousness to the king's son. Well, now, does this mean that the king's son is not supposed to get judgments, and righteousness is not supposed to be related to the king? Well, that can't mean that. It's got to be something like, judgment and righteousness both to the kings and the king's son so you take the parts and you assemble them into a kind of a i mean it's almost like illegitimate totality transfer you assemble them into an uh, a a whole well i'm thinking maybe that's how we're supposed to understand something like this look at the example in the book which was on um, uh let's see here. Okay, here it is. <clears throat> it's on page 174, Luke 14. Okay, now take a look at the Greek here. When you do an ariston, which is like a breakfast or a lunch, or a dipnon, that's dinner. Do not call your friends or your brothers or your relatives and so on. Then he goes on to say, but when you do a dochen, a banquet, call poor people, okay? Now, maybe this is to be seen as a marismus, because he's sort of covered everything. He's covered breakfast or lunch dinner banquet in the whole paragraph and so what i'm saying encompasses all of those in each part so just relate that back to 5a that i mean that's another way to kind of look at that but whatever it is i don't think that you can simply understand dochein literally and exclusively as a banquet and what he's saying you ought to do doesn't apply to anything else okay so Justin thanks for that question now Chris uh, this is actually related to this and, and this was an important point you said I had trouble understanding the significance of the difference between the two possible synecdoches of didaskine in First Timothy. So take your Greek New Testaments. Let's go to that. Um, and I'll I'll show you what I mean by that. That's first Timothy. First um, Timothy two twelve. Page five forty four in the Nestle text. Nestle Island. <clears throat> let's go. Let's start at verse eleven. A woman in quietness, let her learn, in all submission. Verse twelve. Didaskai. Now, Chris, here's where we are. To teach to a woman, I do not permit, nor to exercise or have authority over a man or a husband, but to be in quietness. All right, now, in our traditional handling of this, what people will tend to say, and I'm talking about our church body, the LCMS, they'll tend to make this move. Um, they'll say that to teach is a subcategory of shepherding the pastoral office okay that one of the things there's carousel going on and Didasco, and you know a bunch of other stuff. So here's how the argument would traditionally go. It says this, but this is your entree to that whole thing. So when when Timothy says I do not permit a woman to teach, then that that is used as an argument for to be in the pastoral office. That would be part for the whole. If you say Didasco, it's the whole thing. I'm saying look maybe it's it's um a non-literal use of language but maybe you should look at it going the other way namely forget this move instead maybe Sorry, sorry, misspelling. Kadeheo, to catechize. Our word catechism comes from that, kadeheo. So maybe it's whole for the part. What's the part? Specifically giving catechetical instruction. So in other words, uh, let me back up just a second almost nobody I know of any stripe believes that this is an exhaustively literal term in other words no woman should teach anything to anybody of any kind under any circumstance and should not do this, I mean, not even teach a guy, let's say, how to tie his tie correctly or something like that. In other words, everybody figures that's sort of an entree to a bigger thing or actually too big and really a synecdoche of a narrower thing when they handle the passage. Now, see, almost everybody in this room would not have ever suspected something like that. You come to the passage, ooh, this says to teach. Well, then, then you start working on it all right and so my point is i think this is the move that's being done that while that is while that is thought of while that is spoken in global terms it's really that didasco so frequently seems to be used and it's used this way in the pauline epistles of teaching um, the faith, specific instruction in the faith, not just teaching a, about anything. So hence I would say it's whole for the part, or you might say it's a, it's a um, and this is going to take us to one of the questions that came up here about synonyms, it's higher on the taxonomic scale. They, it's more general, but it, it would be like saying, remember we had this before? Somebody comes up with this cute little dachshund, and you say, hey, that's a nice dog you got there. And the person says, that's not a dog, it's a dachshund. See, that would be a ridiculous response to have, because you are using the language more generally and intending it to apply more specifically, all right? So that's what I meant by that. When most people in our circles read this, they read it as a synecdoche of part for the whole. I'm contending you're probably better off reading it as a synecdoche of whole, for the part, and more narrow. And it's not really talking about the pastoral office at all, which I think is something separate from this. But that's a different lecture. Okay? I was just wondering, it seems like they come to the same place, though, because wouldn't, wouldn't you say that the pastoral office does do the teaching of the faith and the catechesis? Um, no, 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 now you're going on to that next thing. I think there is something um, that the way this is used in the New Testament essentially goes in a different direction. For Well, I, I will say this, Chris, just, I mean, we're going to get way off here if we do this. But if you'll go to our famous Ephesians 4 passage, and we talked about this once before, this is Ephesians 4:11 it's my contention that at the end of verse 11 where you have tus poimenos kai the pastors and teachers that those are two different offices not the same office all right and there's a, you know we talked about that a little bit there's a whole greek style issue with it and everything like that but that's riding pretty heavy in my argumentation here I don't think you can make that move because it's actually something different. Yeah. All right, spellbring Look, I'm going to have to expand. All right. Now, <laughs> let me uh let, let me uh let me put it like this. I think there are I think I can do this in a couple of sentences. All right? There are two different offices, pastor and teacher, which are under the umbrella concept, what I would call, of the office of the holy ministry, which would be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Okay. Point two, thus pastors and teachers are not the same subunit of the office. Point three, I don't think there was ever the slightest question, I don't think there was the slightest question, about women being in the office of pastor, you can see that if you just go down to chapter three of First Timothy two, uh, the overseer should be husband of one wife, not spouse of one spouse, something like that. Okay. Point four. However, the question might have arisen as to whether or not a woman could be a didaskalos, because perhaps of the example of Priscilla okay because Priscilla and Aquila instructed Apollos more accurately in the way in chapter 18 of Acts now take a look at chapter 18 of Acts and this uh, page 377 at the bottom and it says here upon hearing him Priscilla and Aquila took him aside to themselves and Acrebestaron, more accurately, Exethental laid out, note the middle here, they're very interested in getting this done, laid out for him the way, they did this more accurately, the way of God. Now, I think it's interesting that Didosco is not used there, but ectithemi. And Paul himself, in First Timothy, uh, chapter two, up in about verse seven or so, right above that that uh, text we were looking at, calls himself a didaskalos. He says he's a keryx, a herald. He is an apostolos and a didaskalos. So, so in my view, Chris, a didaskalos is what I would call. An official purveyor of the faith. Okay, The one who hands down the official parodies. So in other words, not necessarily somebody who clarifies a difficult point or explains a Bible passage or something like that, but is an official purveyor of the faith. And in my opinion, point five now, this is exactly the issue that Paul's speaking to in first Timothy 2 is the woman not being a dadoscles however this becomes a lot more complicated with that word on drus that comes up there see now is that man is it husband so you got that whole issue in here but anyway that that's how I would try to put so I'm Figuring that that's sort of Didasco in that quasi-official sense, which I would say is actually a narrowing um, of the term. And it's, it's not some, you know, giant passage about what we would loosely call the office of the holy ministry or something. I, I just don't think that that's even, that's even an issue in, in many ways. Yeah. Um, you know, we clearly have pastors that aren't married. So mm-hmm. when saying husband of one wife, would we consider that a synecdoche for men in general? Oh, well, now see, that's very interesting. Uh, there are a lot of arguments about that. And my personal opinion is that it means that a man should be married. Um, now, you know, most people aren't going to think that uh, because most most people think I mean, this is the only way I figure we can keep Ozzy out of the ministry. But, um, um, I mean, come on, your grades are good enough. It's, uh, okay. Uh, But, uh, uh, you know, usually people think, they're arguing, does that mean polygamy? Or if you get divorced, can you be remarried? You know, all that kind of stuff. You're raising, uh, as a matter of fact, you're really raising... The issue that I think lurks even behind that, as to whether or not it's sort of a requirement for being married, uh, to be married, just because of the nature of interpersonal interactions and so on. See, now you're starting to think right about these texts. You start seeing we think they're so simple, and that it means, yeah. Well, wait a minute, though. But maybe, maybe it's literally. The bishop must be the husband of one wife as opposed to taking that as, um, um, as almost a shorthand for at some time or something like that. Yeah, good. Uh, is that okay then? Yeah, good. Okay. Dan, uh, is a synonym the same thing as a metaphor? No, because a synonym... Will be essentially higher up the taxonomic scale. Like dog is not a metaphor for dox hunt. It is a synonym for dox hunt, but it's not a metaphor for it because it's higher, it's a more general term. And that's normally the way we do synonyms. Oh, now, Billy. Hey Billy, why is this paper handed in under the name William Newell here? For heaven's sake. I was wondering who the heck that was. Uh, now, you said, yeah, I, you know, I've been giving those A's to some other guy. Okay. Um, you said here, use um, use the sentence, I'm eating like a cow. Is not meant to describe me standing on all fours and eating straight off the ground. I'm simply eating as if I have four stomachs. Um, we didn't talk about this, and uh, the side that argued con only brought this up marginally. I was waiting to see if more would be developed out of this. And that is, is simile the same as metaphor, except you don't have the word like? Not, a, not in a teenage girl sense. Like I was telling my sister. like we, Not that kind of like. But I am eating like a cow. Or like or as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. You know, that passage that you guys brought up. Now, I think... I think essentially the two are identical in what they do. That is to say, some of the characteristics correspond. Here's what I think the difference is. They have a different effect. A metaphor, I think, has the effect of making the characteristics... Congruent with your person. Whereas a simile just compares features. So if you say, I eat like a cow. I'm figuring it's telling me about your eating habits. But if you say, she's a cow. Okay, now, all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, you are talking (coughs) about the way you view her as a person or something. Now, here's the interesting thing, and I'm relating this back to our argumentation uh, in the debate. With one exception, you should know this, with one exception, all of... The ascriptions to God of feminine characteristics are in simile, as a hen gathers her chick See, <clears throat> I don't think that that's accidental, because when you have, and Paul does this of himself, he says in First Thessalonians two, as a nurse nourishes. Her own child, so I. See? So immediately you know you're supposed to focus on a given activity and it's going to correspond to a feature in somebody else. I don't think this is a small point. Um, so in general, you're not going to have metaphor used of God with feminine language, it's going to generally be simile. There is an exception in Deuteronomy. This is uh, spoken of. Uh, this is discussed in the CTCR document, Biblical Revelation, Inclusive language. But um, it is an interesting thing. I think they sort of linguistically are the same, but effectively work a little bit differently. OK, oh my gosh. We thought we were just cooking along here. Um, yeah. Uh, going back to the point that you made earlier about the importance of uh, you know, men in ministry being married, uh, yeah. do you think there's any way we can lower the cost of seminaries so we can actually uh, afford to go on dates with girls? Oh, now there's an interesting idea. Lower the cost of seminary so we can go on dates and then obey the passage, right? Yeah, there you go. Okay. All right. That's it. All right, for tomorrow, uh, I want your papers for chapter 8. And now there, I- there is some, um, uh, there, uh, there, there are some exercises to do for eight. I want you to do those and bring the exercises to class. I am not going to ask you to do the exercise for Thursday, for tomorrow, but I will ha- ask you to bring that stuff in for chapter eight um, for Monday. But this is a. Difficult chapter conceptually, chapter 8, about external entailment and so on, and filling in the blanks, so um, make a good shot at it.